Hello, everyone, and welcome to We Are Marin and Gold, a podcast featuring me, Chandler Alspector. And me, Aaron Williams. Aaron, we were, we were just talking about musicians and the idea of, of them branching out or not branching out because of who they are and, you know, what, what their skills are and everything. And th- this actually occurred to me while I was driving today because I was listening to an album I hadn't listened to in a very, very long time. And that was Death Magnetic, which is even more than I realized when I was in high school and just sort of accepted, yeah, you know, metal. Um, You can really sense that it's a band um, trying to sound a certain way, which like I've said something like this before about Metallica or a lot of Legacy Act. but like it, it feels even more stark when you listen to the day that never comes and it's so clearly the intro is is a fade to black thing but i guess i i just i would want to if i ever got to talk to metallica ask them like you know they, they had this this period where they did kind of do sort of what they wanted which for some reason was becoming a post-grunge band <laughs> um and then the other time they did what they wanted, which is making an album with Lou Reed of all people. But I, I'd like to to just know, like, you know, there's an expectation of your Metallica, you have metal in your name. Do do you ever feel, especially as you, because they're approaching 60 now, it's a different game uh, whenever you're, or maybe they are 60, I don't even remember at this point, but um, it's a different game when you're that old and playing thrash metal. And everyone, whenever you go, city to city across the world they expect to hear they expect to hear ride the lightning they expect to hear the thing that should not be and so forth and i listen to death magnetic and i and i just wonder this feels a bit forced did they really want to do this and so i guess uh, i'm just i i, I don't have like a, a a question to sort of launch this conversation beyond just like with legacy artists like this um it's got to be hard to 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 kind of stay on brand, right? Yeah, I mean, it's always the classic question of like, how do you evolve as an artist? You know, how do you how do you like how do you evolve as an artist while satiating your fans or not? You know, like what is that dynamic of like I'm gonna make my fans happy by giving them the the kind of thing they like versus like I'm sort of staying true to myself and evolving, you know, or I find other interests. You know, I mean, I would I would say the best bands I, I would I would like to say the best bands find a way sort of to do both. But at the same time, I can think of tons of bands in either camp, bands that are or artists that are, you know, restless and, you know, continue to challenge their audience and uh, push things forward, evolve, if you will you know, and do that really, really well. And they're a really great band for that reason. But I can also think of bands that like don't, you know, um, great bands. I mean, the obvious example here is Motorhead, who made the same album 40 times and it rocks every time, you know, like, and that's an ex- that's an extreme example, but there's a lot of bands like that, you know. Um, ACDC still, still do, makes the same album every five years or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, Radiohead's probably an example of a band that 
is in the complete other direction, you know, where they, you know, in, in their prime, it's like every five years. Well, okay, we're just, you're, you're going to, I hope you like Aphex Twin, you know, we're going to, yeah, we're gonna listen to you know, Daddy's got a Daddy's got a Daddy's got a new pair of samplers, you know, like stuff like that. Um, where, where it's just sort of a constant evolution, you know. And it, I don't know, I don't know if there's like a secret magic recipe to any of it. <laughs> probably just has to somehow connect with your brand and your identity or whatever. I mean, for Radiohead, it's probably good that their identity was as a band that's evolving and changing. So like. By the time they did it, you know, by the time in Rainbows or whatever comes around or Hail to the Thief, you know, or even a Moonshaped Pool, people aren't like, oh, Radiohead, I, oh, the band was great, but yeah. And there's probably some people, but probably not a lot of them. I mean, at a certain point, once you have that identity of somebody that evolves, I mean, you can kind of take an audience with you, but it is a time, it is a time honored, uh, it's a time honored question again of like what. What what do, what, do, what do you want? What do people want? What do you do well? You know, I'm trying to get more examples of that, but it's 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 all it's just a, it's all it's fascinating to watch on sort of a case by case basis, I would say. You know, I think the Radiohead example kind of sets what I think you need to do, and and maybe if we got another 20 years of of Talking Heads, or maybe if like Radiohead had made music in the last seven years and is maybe going to make music again we can sort of see if this really applies but when when you set a standard of constant change early that does establish you know if if you just wanted to hear the bends or even pablo honey and and stay in in the mid 90s then you are going to get off the right at some point and the people who really love your band are going to be willing to see where you take them, even if they still have a fondness for fake plastic trees or whatever. But I, I, I guess I, I just wonder, because I think about the bands we listen to right now, the people for the, the, the bands for the youth, you know, the people of today, like going in, in 20 years, if there's a Bonavera to go see, like, what what will that be like? I'm sure lots of people will just be wanting to hear stuff from 22 million because it's the stuff they heard whenever they were in their 20s and going through a harder time. But when you're when you're 50 and maybe doing more okay and you know uh, maybe have a, a couple kids or, or something like that in a mortgage, it's just a different place in life. And are you wanting to hear whatever Justin Vernon is is doing in the the late 2030s or something like that or uh or why not Courtney Barnett who who's not like dramatically changing from album to album but is sort of slowly evolving while also like the sort of core of her music is about uh sort of a, a specific stage of life and the emotions you feel on that stage in life and how I it, it you know it's the toughest I guess challenge of all is trying to remain both vital and having something to say and keeping that talent into yeah. your middle and older aged years. But um, it's just, I, I kind of want to know what these bands looked like when I'm an adult, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, again, that's sort of the beauty and the fun, the fun of art and music and watching it play out, you know, and watching the career, you know, the career arc, you know? Um, yeah, I think, you know, Boney Bear is a really interesting example of, of an artist that has, you know, or a group or collective or <laughs> person or whatever um, that has, you know, to your point about Radiohead, really set a standard for change. 
but at the same time, I think they're an interesting case study because you do have a lot of people. There's a lot of casual fans, you know, they're big enough that there's a lot of casual fans. So I feel like do just like want to hear like for Emma, you know, and like, uh, you know, maybe some maybe some stuff off the self-titled, you know, or skating love or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, you know, even at that show we were at, I mean, you could sense the dynamics of, you know, there's some people here that are really in for the ride. You know what I mean? And there's some people here who are more casual, who are just looking for, you know, want to hear a couple songs. And so, yeah, I mean, you can already see it sort of play out, even aside from not even the question of like, what does it look like in 30 years, but also the question of what does it look like now and how are different people's viewpoints reflected on, you know, I don't know, like what, what experience are these different people in the audience sort of getting from it? You know what I mean? Um, And I would say in the case of somebody like Courtney Barnett, I would also make the case that some art is timeless, obviously, but you know, somebody like that, I mean, even if she never puts out another record or all or all of her records are bombed, they bomb and they're terrible and, you know, she falls off the face of the earth. I mean, it's one of the cool things about music, I think, is that I don't think that diminishes, you know, the power of that art or the power of uh, whatever connection that people had with it. You know what I mean? I mean, that's one of the cool things I've come to appreciate about nostalgia acts. You know what I mean? I mean, I remember when I saw David Crosby you know, five or six years ago, you know, rip in peace. You know, I thought I thought what he did and this this show actually balanced it really well, I thought, where he really had some sort of out there deep cuts, you know, sort of this not free jazz, but but very open ended, you know, very deep, jazzy, you know, subtle musicianship, great harmonies, you know, stuff that echoed the stuff that he uh that echoed, you know, his, his, his hits, but wasn't, wasn't, weren't that, weren't that, um, you know, but then at the end he played the, you know, he played the hits and it was, it was all great, but, you know, it's just interesting again, the dynamic, I don't know where I'm going with this, just the dynamic of, the dynamic of watching artists sort of try to be relevant, not in a commercial sense, but try to remain vital. And in his case, successfully, I think by reinventing the deepest parts of his catalog, and then at the end, you know, sort of he sort of rewarded the audience with, you know, with Ohio and, you know, um, Guinevere and stuff that wouldn't ships. But I don't know where I'm going with that. I just I, I just think it's I just think it's interesting. Well, well, the example you were mentioning before we start recording, it's one you, you've mentioned to me before is, uh, is is Mastodon. And they sort of fit in the, the sort of metallic space here to, to bring it all back in terms of when you are in a particular genre too, I feel like the pressure to be that is a lot higher. Um, and the, yes, every genre, every corner of music has more hybridity, more fluidity between genres. If you want to throw in sequencers, I don't think every metalhead is going to reject that outright, even if it is a genre very steeped in tradition and sort of organic, organic air quotes, ways of doing things. But like I, I guess I would I would want to know like did would would, would they cons- have they ever considered saying we're just gonna put out an EP of like to, to use the example you mentioned of like country albums or like would they ever go on a, a sort of mini tour of just some southern cities and say 
we're not doing the Mastodon thing. We're going to go by like a different name, and we're just going to play some. DGs. What was that? The DGs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, something I don't know, but just they're they're, they're going to go up and play whatever they're really into right now, and maybe if if they're feeling spicy or, or want to make sure people are happy, they play like a you know a different version of ghost of pirelli or something i don't know if that's the song you can really play around too much with but i just i want to know i, w- I want to know how they they especially in a band in a in a metal band feel about those uh the sort of implied restrictions and if they want to would seriously consider branching out just just for fun and just because maybe someone would want to listen to it yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um I remember a couple years ago um, watching that Marcus King live stream with Brent Hines and they played War Pigs. I know that's not that far off. <laughs> no, it's not. But like he still showed up on a thing with Marcus King. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Again, like guys that don't usually you wouldn't think you would think of as sort of an odd couple, you know, and maybe they are sort of an odd couple. But, you know, just two two guitarists sort of showing up and, uh, you know, doing their thing on some. I mean, and that was that was again, that wasn't. I mean, that wasn't, you know, them playing a, you know, you know, Herbie Hancock or something, right? It wasn't like something way out there, but, you know, it was like something that felt like, okay, this is at least like a step outside of, you know, sludge metal. <laughs> it's old sludge metal, but, you know, like a step outside of the, of whatever. Um, was it, was it that or was the Hand of Doom? Was it War Pigs or was the Hand of Doom? Uh electric funeral actually electric funeral that's right that's right oh that's a that's a ripper of a song but absolutely anyhow well anyway i'm glad we got to explore that because uh it's it's a fun question to think about but uh you, you know how you you always you know keep the audience guessing always you know sort of you don't really know what's going to come next you know how you do that aaron huh you uh you field a football team with a lot of underclassmen in the starting lineup. Indeed, indeed. And the uh, at, in places very veteran, but in many places not. Minnesota Golden Gophers suffered a crushing defeat on Saturday against Illinois, 27-26. Gave up the winning touchdown to Isaiah Williams with about 50 seconds left on a uh, post route between the safeties over the middle and uh, over the head of Cody Lindenberg. Well, I, I guess I, I've written a lot about the game in specific terms, but I want to do sort of more like a big picture, macro, tonal, like how are we feeling session here. And I guess I just want to know, Aaron, who are you firing and how soon? <laughs> oh, well, oh, well, I'm firing... Uh... I'm firing Connor Stallion. No, just kidding. Um, you know, and I, I, I think I read your thing about it. And I've read a little bit, you know, I also have thought about it a little bit. I mean, it's not, it's not the end of the world. You know, it, it could be a lot worse. But ultimately, I think you made a good point of this in your blog where, I mean, this, while, while maybe we still were, were holding on to a fringe hope of, you know, winning the West and, you know, earning the right to get slaughtered in a, in a Big Ten championship game, which would be cool, undoubtedly. This team is just young and inconsistent. That's just who they are, right? Like, 
This is not a this is not a veteran team that has no business losing to anybody. You know what I mean? It's not the it's not whatever uh, it's not Bowling Green or Miami, Ohio or Illinois at other points like, you know, this is a uh, this is a to your point young team that is inconsistent that, you know, is is good at some things sometimes, but. Um, ultimately it just doesn't always tie it together. Um, and so, you know, with that in mind, when you, when you, when you think about it like that, it becomes a lot less frustrating when you just take the big 10 championship off the table. I think it's a lot less frustrating. I think there were, you know, things to sort of build on, um, in the game. I mean, I, you know, specifically, I mean, I know a lot of people have written about the pass rush, Ethan, you know, threw three touchdowns, you know, I mean, he wasn't great, but he was pretty good at a lot of points. You know, your backup running backs, um, I would have liked to see more Zach Evans touches, but, um, you know, your running backs, I thought played, you know, pretty all right. It's just, it's just, it's a tough, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough, if not catastrophic loss is what I would say. Yeah, I, I just, I was really zen about it within like 15, 20 minutes after the game. I, there was a, a kid right behind us who was just an assistant that like, dude, this is the worst team in the Big Ten. What are we doing? Like, this sucks. And, like, I understand that impulse when it's happening, but I I think if that's your your impulse and you, you haven't – you can't check that at all and, and can't, like, sort of think about why is this happening, who is out there right now, like, I just don't know that you know <laughs> – enough about what you're talking about because you've got three new starters on, on the offensive line. You've got a new quarterback who, as we have seen plenty of times, is capable of doing some really cool things and other times has a four yard throw with, with no one in his face and skies it, or we've got the, the, in, uh, on the touchdown, it was a redshirt freshman playing field safety, and you had Darius Green, a, a, a redshirt sophomore, playing the nickel. You've just got all these young guys everywhere, a lot of new starters. This happens. Iowa went four and eight one year, and three years later, four years later, whatever, they won the Big Ten West with 12 wins. This happens to every program in the country, and when you're not Alabama, when you're not one of these, you know, mega programs. A reset year does not mean only winning eight. A reset year win means winning five, six, maybe even four sometimes. They're just cycles. Guys graduate, you got to bring in the, the, the guys you've got on the roster and have them play. And that's just how it goes. And sometimes they're ready, sometimes they're not. And there's no substitute for game reps, even if they are a junior, maybe. Um, they just have to play. And when they play, They'll get the experience they need to be better in the future. And if well, you're from now, this is still a problem, have at it. Fire PJ Fleck because clearly there is something wrong. But right now, I am not inclined to think there is something deep-seated wrong with this program. And, you know, I mean, think back. I mean, think about, you know, the last couple of years um, and how 21 and 22, I mean, those are pretty good years. Um, but think about what preceded that, you know, 2020. And I know 2020 was, you know, crazy and, you know, um, not great in a lot of ways. And, you know, it was obviously so chaotic, you know, with COVID and everything else. But, you know, at the same time, you know, you can also you can also view that as like, well, God, you know, Mariano, sorry, Mary, you know, people needed reps. 
You know what I mean? People needed to get on the field and, you know, get better. Just I'm, I, 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 I agree with you. I just think, again, these young teams, they got they got they got to play. They got to learn. They got to fail. It's how you get better. You know, trial, trial, trial by fire, you know. Um, and I think but I think 2020 is an interesting sort of case study where you can look back and you can draw a parallel and say, yeah, this is this is comparable. You know, this is uh, this is a year where we were under 500. We didn't do great. But then, you know what? We brought some guys back. They improved a couple of years later, whatever you're nine and four. Yeah, I mean, Jesus, Tyler Newman was awful his first season as a starter. Cody Lindbergh was awful his first season uh, of college football. This happens. And yes, I, I think there are places this roster can improve, to be sure. I don't think P.J. Fleck was really at fault that much for that loss. So not compared to some of the other losses. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. This is not Northwestern in the slightest. This is not Bowling Green. This is not Illinois of 2021. Uh, this, this is not any of the Iowa losses or anything like that. I would, you know, I, I understand the argument against that third and nine, third and eight, whatever run at the end of the first half. But I also hear PJ Fleck talked about, and he he's like, yeah, we weren't. This wasn't us trying to set up a field goal. This was like we 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 thought we would get a light box and run into it and have space. And Reverend Spanford didn't really get his block super well on the left side, and they didn't really have the space they wanted. So had to be fourth and medium, and they kicked. I don't know that they would have gone for it if they set up fourth and short. You can definitely argue third and nine, you should pass. I'm not going to tell you that's not a valid argument. But there wasn't any weird timeout stuff. There wasn't really any moments where I thought they they packed it in too much. Maybe they abandoned the pass a little bit early, but Ethan Kalikmanis was not really hitting the throws that much in the second half, even before the badness. Like, this was not really on P.J. Fleck, except in the sort of macro sense of he's the head coach. It's a bad loss. It stops with him. And even again, I just sometimes the guys got to make plays. I think they were in positions and they just didn't. They, they should have closed this game out. And that happens. That just happens. Uh, so, yeah. Obviously, if they lose to Purdue on Saturday, that's not good. If they lose to Purdue and lose to Wisconsin, that's not good. And you're missing a bowl because I assume we're all writing off Ohio State. But like like I said on the blog, like this team was not going to win the West. I could have told you that in August. I probably did. I thought it would be Iowa and injuries befell Iowa. And, and even set, I, I think they're not going to win the West. I think it's probably going to be Wisconsin or Nebraska even at this point. Because Iowa's offense is so bad, I think they're going to lose to Rutgers and Nebraska. But they were in position. Wisconsin is, you know, they're beat up and very shaky, but they could still win the West. Honestly, Minnesota, if they if they beat Wisconsin and Rutgers, and like I think Iowa can lose. Like that's there's a chance, honestly. But like that's not the point. The, the, this is not a competing team. If they were to make it to Indianapolis, like you said, Aaron, they're getting they're getting blown out. So, yeah. And again, that would that would be cool. It'd be fun. But this is a, it's a rebuild year. It's a reset year, as you said. Th this is just how it goes. And like I said, a year from now, I'm not going to be saying the same tune if, if they're in this exact spot, because um, even with a tougher schedule, this should be a better team next year.
just just flat out this should be a better team next year but get back to me next year about blowing up the program or anything so anyway this upcoming opponent purdue is two and seven i think they're better than that i don't know if there's any one of these games that they've lost that i i would say they should have won but they just it seems like they have enough like scattered guys that you would say that's a good player he could play on a lot of big 10 teams and be fine um, if not a, a real stud and it just it pops up in in places here like running back i think we both like devin mockaby um yeah, fortunately Tyron, after last year yeah yeah uh still a very tough runner he's got good vision he's surprisingly nimble for for a guy who's is that you know kind of physical generally uh, Tyrone Tracy, the Iowa transfer, converted from receiver. Uh, he returns kickoffs for them. He looks really shifty, good with the ball in his hands. He's someone to look out for. I think the receiver room is pretty good. Deion Burks, TJ Sheffield, Abdur Rahman Yassin can't stay healthy, but he's got some talent still. Garrett Miller, their tight end. Like, you know, he's not Jackson Anthrop, or Anthrop wasn't a tight end. He's, he's not Payne Durham or anything, but he's he's decent. And then on defense, I, I, I like their their outside linebackers, uh, Nick Storton and, and Tatron Jenkins. Those guys have combined for 24 and a half tackles for loss. They've got another Thieneman brother, Dylan, at free safety, who's made some plays this year. And obviously, uh, Cam Allen is still around, even if he hasn't made quite the impact he has in past seasons. There are guys throughout the, the 2D that you can go, that's a good player, that's a good player. But the reason they're two and seven is they still have a lot of weaknesses, and those weaknesses have been exacerbated considerably by a lot of injuries. I'll start on offense. Which, by the way, do you know who the offensive coordinator at Purdue is? Ah, uh, enlighten me. It's one Graham Harrell. Ah, wow. Ooh, shiny. Yeah, yeah. Who's that? Who was bad at at USC? To be honest, I. I I love Graham Harrell. He's one of my childhood idols and everything from his time at Tech. But it's fair to say that the offensive coordinator he was at UNT is not the offensive coordinator he was at USC. Uh, I haven't, I, I've only watched two or three games of Purdue this season. We, we, we are recording a day earlier than normal. Um, so I can't really comment, especially because of the other issues with, with Purdue's offense. Um, but you, you look at their offensive line, and they, they, they've had a, a difficult time on the offensive line because the right tackle, Marcus Bowe, he suffered a season-ending injury against Iowa, which, you know, that happens everywhere. But then, very next game, Luke Griffin, the right tackle, Missouri transfer, who's, who's, who's coming in at right tackle to replace Bowe, he suffers a season-ending injury. Mm. And then their left tackle against Nebraska, Muhammad Musa, he suffers a season-ending injury. Mm. And so at, at left tackle right now, you've got a Kent State transfer and Daniel Johnson. Left guard is a UNLV transfer, uh, Preston Nichols. Right guard, you have a Bowling Green transfer who's only a reserve at Bowling Green. And then at right tackle, you have Ben Farrell, who's a grad transfer from Indiana Wesleyan, which is an NIA school. Ooh. But here's the thing. He started his college athletics career at Cornerstone University in Michigan, which is a different NIAA school, but he was a golfer at Cornerstone. 
so it's a, it's kind of a hodgepodge group. And I, I, I'm sure he actually like earned his way out of the NIA levels as a football player and everything. He's 6'4", 3'10". That's, that's proper beef and everything. But this is not a good offensive line. It's had some struggles. And it's one of the reasons that Hudson Card keeps getting sacked. The other is that Hudson Card is just sack prone. Um, he holds onto the ball a long time. He can run himself. He's a, he's a really good scrambler, but like he tries to do too much sometimes, and that gets him into trouble. So he, he's got talent. He's got a good arm. That he, he played at Texas the last three years sporadically. Um, first, as a he kind of battled for the the starting job with Casey Thompson, and then uh, lost the. I, I don't know if he ever had the starting job when Quinn Ewers came in, but he he did throw 108 passes last year at UT. Anyway, he's got eight interceptions to nine touchdowns. He's been sacked 19 times this year. Like I said, I think it's largely his fault, but at the same time, he can run the ball. Um, he can run around and make plays, as you saw in the Illinois game, if you watched that. But this is a, one of the least explosive teams in the country, both running and passing. They're not good in the red zone either. It, it, it's not really working, in part because of the the sack problems, in part because of the injuries. It's also just they're they're not doing exceptionally well. So, um, as as far as keys go, just try to keep Card in the pocket. I don't think you have to worry as much about the the deep threat here, but I I, I don't know. I I do think there is some skill in the the receiving core, and again, I I think Card has enough arm talent where maybe you, you need to worry about it a bit but they haven't that hasn't really led to results in terms of big plays so historically um, a very and i know it was under a different regime but historically very good receivers i know they have some holdovers from that regime uh, in that program in the last five years six years seven years even yeah burks and sheffield those those are guys who have been getting reps uh sheffield is a fifth year player and, and and garrett miller has been around a little while there there are some uh, some holdovers from the Brom years, and actually they play pretty similarly to the Brom teams. You know, lots of shotgun, pretty much exclusively shotgun, actually. Mostly 11 personnel. They're still pass first. Card is averaging almost 40 dropbacks a game, and it's short throws. You know, lots of lot, lots of swing passes and then the like. You know, they'll get their running backs involved in the passing game. So, you know, they they've kind of stayed roughly the same even if it it has its differences so um you know it, it's not a, a terribly different look than what you're getting what you've been getting from purdue in past years uh defensively it it looks a lot like what you saw last week though um because obviously the the head coach of purdue ryan walters was illinois defensive coordinator last year and for a year or two before that and he's pretty good at his job um, but so far, that hasn't really meant results. They're 81st in yard for play allowed this season. Their run defense is okay, not great. Their pass defense, they are 18th in completion percentage allowed, but 126th in yards per completion allowed. This is very boomer bust. Um, they play a lot of man, a lot of cover one. They've got that they'll do the the same thing as Illinois last week, uh, where they will load up the line with four with with five rushers and a, and a three four look. Um, they may blitz a bunch, and that just leaves open spaces to where if you know you're either going to get sacked or you're going to hit a bomb probably. So um, by the way, defensive line coach Brick Haley, who was defensive line coach in Minnesota last year, uh, didn't want to sneak that in before we keep going, but. Um, 
The injuries continue on defense. OC Brothers, their inside linebacker, suffered an injury against Wisconsin that is likely season-ending. Um, Marquise Wilson, a Penn State transfer who's done pretty well at cornerback, has done. Uh, he he had a, a season-ending injury against Illinois, uh, which means they're starting a true freshman, Derek Rogers Jr. at cornerback. So good luck to him. Uh, I think if you can isolate him against Daniel Jackson, that'd be a good thing. Him and the uh, Juco transfer, Boctros Alessandro, uh, Botros Alessandro, excuse me, um, at, at corner, you, you, you will probably want to pick on them as best you can. On the defensive line, it's a lot of transfers. Uh, Cole Brevard is a holdover, but otherwise you've got a Vanderbilt transfer in Malik Langham, an Arkansas grad transfer in, uh, in Isaiah Nichols, an Auburn transfer in Jeffrey Mbaugh, and then uh, a, he's, he's been in the program for a while, but Joe Anderson originally played at South Carolina. So they, they're trying to, especially up front, um, get experienced really quickly and sort of, you know, protect any of the younger guys on the roster they may have. Uh, and it hasn't really worked super well for them because they're getting sort of secondary players from these schools, not, not any stars coming over. So, um, I think the, the, the plan here is, is simple. Chuck it. Um, if they show the, the same looks you got in the first half against Illinois um, with the, the, the single deep safety and lots of man, then take your chances. Get Daniel Jackson the ball. See what Crab can do in this game. Give Elijah Spencer some chances uh, because I think you'll have the guys to, to beat them downfield. Um, and maybe it doesn't work out, but I, I, I think it's more likely that Khaled Mass will be throwing incompletions than interceptions because the thing is when you've got that single high safety is he can only help out one cornerback. And that was actually one of the reasons that I think Illinois buckled down in the second half and, and, and flat point this out was, was they were showing more cover two looks. And so there was more help for the, the cornerbacks and, and man to man. And uh, maybe Purdue sees that and says, we need to do that. Take away the downfield passing game with, with too high. But if you don't see that, then I think there will be room at least early to, uh, to, to hurt them downfield. So try to do that. And I think you should profit. Projections. Purdue is actually favored by Vegas by a point here. But I, I can't find any projections that favor them. Sagarin, FBI, FPI all have win probabilities in the 50s for the Gophers. Um, Massey also at 56%. SP plus 66% chance at a Minnesota win. Uh, CFB graphs is at 61.5 too. So um, this will probably be a bit closer than we would like to think it will be against a 2017. But I also think Purdue does have some guys to keep up. Um, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, I'll say they write the ship. I'll go 20 to 17. I, to be honest, do not. I don't know about this game. I just, I just, it just, it feels strange. You know, it feels like there could be a hangover from last week. It feels like Purdue is not good, but not like you, like you said. I mean, it's at a lot of levels, and don't seem nearly as bad as a typical two and seven team might. You mentioned they're depleted, but they don't necessarily feel like. I mean, sometimes you get a two and seventeen. Like I remember, like Indiana a year or two ago, where it was like, where it was like, oh, like this is like, this is like a, this is like what a one and eight team like, where they're really, you know, they've just given up, 
You know what I mean? <laughs> Almost like it doesn't it doesn't feel like that, even though the results haven't been good. I mean, they've been playing against good teams. Uh, they played a good schedule. So, yeah, I don't I don't I, I just I just I just do not know. But I'll, I'll say we write the ship 20 to 17 Gophers. The thing is, when, when you're when you're really bad on the offensive line, that will kill a lot of what you try to do on offense. Yeah. Um, and when you're kind of mad on the defensive line and don't really have cornerbacks, which might be the, uh, maybe not the most important position on defense, but second most behind edge rusher, um, you know, it, it'll it'll cause you some problems, even if you've got some some guys elsewhere. But um, I'm going to say 27 to 20 in favor of Minnesota. I could see a blowout. I could see Purdue winning. Um, but I don't think Purdue can win in a blowout. I think this is a situation where the Gophers really should win this game. Um, and again, I don't think it's right to get existential, but you are right to be angry if they don't win this game, uh, in, unless it happens in the flukiest form possible and you just have to say that's football. But, you know, the, the projections suggest it's, it's closer than I would think Duke should be. And, um, at the same time, I have some respect for these the, the guys on their roster. So, 2:30 will be the kickoff on NBC. Low 50s temperature, clear, two to four mile per hour winds. Really a lovely day in West Lafayette, by the sounds of it. And those of us not going, which includes me, even though I really wanted to do it this year, will be subject to Jack Collinsworth and Jason Garrett. Not as bad as Matt Millen last week. I. I've heard enough Matt Millen to know why you say that. <laughs> At the same Wait. time, I, I I listened to Jack Collinsworth and Jason Garrett call a couple of games this season, and God, Jack Jack Collinsworth is awful. It, it takes a lot for a play-by-play guy to to be as grating as he is. But anyway, 11 a.m. on BTN. Illinois hosts Indiana. Maryland goes to Nebraska, same time on Peacock. On Fox, Michigan, Penn State is the big game in the Big Ten this weekend. Rutgers, Iowa, 2.30 on BTN. Northwestern, Wisconsin, 2.30 on FS1. And the night game on NBC is Michigan State, Ohio State. What will you be watching this weekend? Yeah, so I won't be watching much because I'll be in New York City. Um, But um, were I a... A betting man. <laughs> uh, I put my money um, certainly on, um, well, I guess we'll start Friday. Um, UNLV Wyoming is strangely intriguing. Um, I will probably be in the air for almost the entirety of that game, unfortunately. Um, so I will miss it. Unless I can get it on the flight. I don't know. We'll see. But that looks good. Michigan, Penn State, obviously, I think will live up to the billing. I like Michigan in that game. Not to say I like Michigan, but I do think their offense is more explosive and more equipped. I know Penn State has good running backs, but I think Michigan's offense will ultimately be the difference. Just having watched the Ohio State game, I know Ohio State has a great defense, but still, um, I like Michigan as a favorite in that game. You know, Alabama, Kentucky, you probably favor Alabama, could Theoretically, be interesting if there's some turnovers or something. I don't know if you like Tech in Kansas, but I don't know where you stand on Tech this year. It seems like it's a frustrating sort of uh, ordeal, um, but uh, it's a big, big game for them. I uh, would certainly be a big win, um, and uh, you probably need it if you want to go bowling. 
Yeah, uh, it's important. Um, I'm not going to lie. But at the same time, like I, I'm kind of I'm higher on tech than the average population because I looked at the computer rankings and they like tech generally. I, I can't pull out the Massey composite right now for some reason, but they're they've been hovering in the low 30s of um, of SP plus this year. Um, Massey doesn't dislike them at all. Uh, yeah, here we go. They're um, where is tech tech range? Well, I'm surprised to see them 50th in the Massey composite, uh, but I'm seeing um, as high as 17th according to uh, projection system. I don't know, but like the sort of is they've had awful fumble luck, um, you know, which will will kill a season. Just just ask the early season Vikings. Um, but also they had a, a couple of games where they had to play a third string quarterback and I have a redshirt freshman at that and made a couple of big plays, but he also fumbled two snaps near BYU's goal line and gave the ball away. And that usually means losses. So um, they're better than their record. Kansas is also good. I think that'll be an entertaining game. You know, obviously, uh, in Pac-12 um, at one, um, obviously, we have kind of sort of fallen off Colorado. Uh, but Arizona, great story. Jed Fish, we talk about it a couple weeks in a row, but um, that is a, uh, a great story, a program that was <laughs> left for dead, all but left for dead, um, and has been uh, very, uh, very, very good this year. Had a big win against UCLA recently. Um, trying to end the season strong. They got uh, Colorado uh, and then Utah and Arizona State. So uh, probably looking at a potentially an eight eight win season for Arizona, which is great, especially in a conference as stacked as the Pac-12 is this year. Um, beyond that, um, App State, Georgia State, uh, probably not Troy and Monroe. Sorry. Others, I'm just scrolling through to remind myself. Uh, Florida State favored handily over Miami. This at the beginning of the year, this looks like it'd be a better matchup than it probably is, as is sort of the way with those two teams. You know, one of them tends to sort of fall off. But Florida State looks very good. Uh, obviously, 7-230, excuse me. Uh, Utah-Washington. I don't think Utah has the juice to stay with Washington, but those are two very good teams. Likewise, with uh, Tennessee-Missouri. Missouri has just been sort of like, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Persistent? Um, where maybe they played enough games where we thought they would fall off, and they have just they have just been pretty good all year. And now they come in as one point dogs at home against Tennessee, against a pretty good Tennessee team. So uh, that's a ranked matchup. Figures to be pretty good. You know, Rutgers, Iowa. I like you. I kind of like Rutgers in this, uh, just because Iowa is deplorable uh, and just really terrible. What else we got? New Mexico State. Well, I don't know anything about Western Kentucky this year, but New Mexico State's a great story. Go Jerry Hill. You know, we, we, we're, we're nothing but homers here. And then going to later on, um, you have Ole Miss, Georgia. I think Lane, I saw a headline that Lane Kiffin said today they have nothing to lose, and that is absolutely true. Uh, doesn't mean they won't get beat bad, um, but he is right. You know, they have – no one expects them to win this, so you know who knows. Maybe it'll be interesting. It is a top. It is a top ten matchup, um, albeit one without sort of tremendous expectations. Um, and then Duke Carolina, I would say, is sort of the last, the last one that I would point out. Um, well, USC Oregon, BYU, uh, 
Iowa State just nominally. Uh, but Duke, Carolina, those are two good teams. Uh, those are bitter rivals usually in football. Uh, I think Duke's quarterback is out, but uh, should still be. Uh, could could still be a could still potentially be a fun one. Yeah, I I, I think that uh, I might actually be the best evening game before we get in the the late late slot. I, I really like Duke Carolina as a, as a game here. Um, there are, there are a few teams I want to point out who I think have kind of flown under the radar. Um, one of them is Georgia Tech, who yep. I. Can they go bowling if they beat Clemson? They're not going to, but could they? They could. They absolutely could. They need to beat Clemson or let's see who the last team they play is. Georgia. Georgia. Oh, no, they play Syracuse, too. So dream is alive. Yeah. Dream's alive. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that is it's probably not going to be a good game. But yeah, I, I'm glad Georgia Tech is, is not like the tire fire they were uh, under the, the last guy. Um, Texas State goes to Coastal, and Coastal has very quietly put together a pretty decent season post Chadwell. And Texas State, I think, is on the verge of bowling if they haven't become they bowls. Already, they're both both these teams are six and three. Good. Um, and and you know, Texas State has not been bowl eligible in their entire time in FBS, so that's a very very big season for them. Um, West Virginia. Has, has not been outstanding or anything, but uh, I think they're good enough to beat Oklahoma. Um, and then I, Oklahoma is certainly not good enough to be invincible. <laughs> yes, most certainly not. Um, but I also, uh, I, I have two FCS games I want to point out, which I, I'm sure the Sitgos committee is on these two games. I don't really love the Sitgos committee's whole deal because the, uh, the 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 mission statement is like you know all football is good football but they don't really act like it and, and this, this is reminiscent of the UMass UConn game from last year or uh, two years ago when they were both winless and someone had to win and when I, whoever was I think I, I can't remember which team won but whoever it was was like elated that they got that one win and in Western Illinois Indiana State. In Wofford, the Citadel, you've got two 0-9 versus 0-9 matchups, and someone is going to win. The other one is probably going to go winless for the season. Um, and, you know, whoever is, is going to get that win is going to have the best day of their whole years, and that's something to actually, like, care about. I, I, I'm not going to lie and pretend I'm going to watch these games because Tech will be on at the same time and Watford the Citadel is going to start an hour and a half for the Jophers. But um, that's that's a notable story that I wanted to note here. I also wanted to note Friday night we have the Safeway Bowl in Dallas, North Texas at SMU. And SMU is really good. They're another team that's just kind of quietly been taking care of business, scoring a lot and actually feeling a pretty good defense. And, and North Texas is the exact opposite. Well, maybe not the exact opposite. Um, they are all offense. I think SP Plus had them about 30th in offense and last place in defense this year. Um, Eric Morris, the great Eric Morris, on the subject of 2008 Texas Tech Red Raider football players, uh, he, is, he has hastened the, uh, the, the sort of leaning into the, the air raid stereotype in Denton. But uh, 
you know, SMU doesn't care that much about this game. UNT does. And uh, it should sure be nice if UNT won this game, especially because it might uh, get them within range of full eligibility. So um, go mean green. Absolutely. I am out of games. Is there anything we missed? Uh, no, and my computer is about to die in a couple minutes. So even if there was, I'm not sure we'd get to it. All right, we'll, we'll be uh, on our way out then. Um, thank you, everyone who listened. Uh, we will talk next week, hopefully about a go for victory, and um, also about the many ways one can die walking into the horseshoe in Columbus. All right, I'll see you.